because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. So to, on today's episode, we have a special guest. His name is Jeff Lindsay. He is one of the OG defenders of the faith. For, about thir- for almost 30 years, he's been blogging about the church and addressing some of these critical issues. Professionally, he worked with intellectual property, and he has served as a bishop and in many other callings in the church. Thanks for being on, Jeff. I appreciate it. You bet. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would say almost 30 years writing, but the blogging aspect started a little later than that. So it was the blogging's getting close to 20, but not quite 20, but been writing about things for a long time. Okay. Good to know. Um, so I guess with your, with your journey of writing and blogging, how did you get interested in kind of taking, kind of getting into this space of yeah. apologetics and such? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I was very fortunate when I went to school at Brigham Young University. Uh, I, was, I was there studying chemical engineering, but my, I got married. And uh, while I was married, my wife and I were in then a, a regular ward in Provo, um, not one of the student wards. And it was just wonderful to be in a, in a regular ward. And one of the first people I met in the regular ward was Hugh Nibley. And Hugh Nibley is sort of the, you know, the father of, of LDS apologetics, and he is so interesting, very, very dynamic, lots of uh, idiosyncratic views, and he's, not a, he's, he's also iconoclastic. He's not afraid to challenge a lot of paradigms and you know, shock people from time to time. He is so smart. He uh, studied so many languages. He's read deeply in so many areas. And it was just fascinating to be in his Sunday school class teaching gospel doctrine. And I really enjoyed it quite a lot. But after a couple of lessons, I was approached by the bishop asking if, uh, explaining that Brother Nibley, because he's working on so many books and things and needs some time off, would I be willing to team teach? Meaning to really taking alternate weeks um, from Hugh Nibley, which was very intimidating. But uh, it was just, it was really wonderful to be a part of that class and to pay a lot of attention to what he said. Uh, it was really a fascinating experience. There were some things that happened that were quite humorous. Um, you know, he was so deep into some of the issues that he didn't realize how far above everybody's head he might be speaking at some time. My, I think the most memorable lesson that he gave, I can remember, is uh, he came in and started talking about facsimile two in the Book of Abraham, which is one of his areas of intense research. And up in the upper right-hand corner of facsimile two, there's this interesting figure. It looks like a bird presenting this eye-like object, and it's called the wedged eye. Um, there's a lot of rich symbolism in Egyptian lore about what that means and how it was used. And all that symbolism really nicely adds up to the idea of this is a grand keyword, and it does represent the priesthood. That's a nice way of summarizing a lot of the lore, at least in Brother Nibley's opinion. And so he was presenting this idea, but his lesson began by, today we're gonna to talk about the wedged eye. And then he just started 
quote after quote about the wedge I this and the wedge I that. And I remember people in the class turning their heads to each other and saying, what's the wedge I? What's he talking about? He never bothered to explain, oh, it's this little drawing here in facsimile two, and here's what it means. And here's, he assumed we knew all that down pat. And he was just getting into the deep theory on it, all its connections in the literature. One hour of that, an amazing experience. We all survived, but it was, uh, it was a good lesson to remind us that sometimes when we're talking about the gospel, we may be on a complete, completely different plane of preparation and awareness than other people are. And if we start throwing out, well, here's this and that about the wedge eye, and they don't even know what facsimile two is, it's not going to connect to their needs. So uh, I learned a few things from that, but just love the chance to, to learn from him. And that got me really interested in the fact that there are some deep intellectually satisfying issues around the gospel evidences in support of the antiquity of the LDS scriptures. And that includes the book of Abraham, Book of Moses, which has been an interesting area of exploration for me recently, and especially the Book of Mormon. And if people don't understand that, if they haven't explored, at least in some way, how deep and intellectually rich these materials are, then I think it does leave them very vulnerable for some of the crafty, you know, slights or, or, or arguments that the world will throw their way. I think we really need to use this time to get more grounded in appreciating the, the riches of the scriptures. Awesome. See, that's kind of like, that kind of part, that kind of sparked your curiosity. And I guess from there, how did you begin? What was the process of beginning to write about this? Oh, that's a great question. Well, yeah, that sparked my curiosity and, and it sparked my reading. There's really, there's really a need to, to dig. There's so many fascinating materials now involving the LDS scriptures. Uh, and the, the new, new in-depth research articles are being published every week at the Mormon Interpreter. Or Mormon Interpreter, that's the old name. It is in the, the, the Interpreter Journal at interpreterfoundation.org. So it's the Interpreter Journal for Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship. Uh, I have been fascinated with publications in that journal. I've seen so many new exciting developments there. Some of these developments also get shared on Book of Mormon Central or Pearl of Great Price Central, and now there's Evidence Central, and there's also Fair Mormon. And unfortunately, I find that maybe a majority of Latter-day Saints have never used any of these websites and aren't even aware of them. And unfortunately, there are people having crises of faith over issues that have been thoroughly explored and things that might seem like weaknesses to them, when you look at it properly, you understand the real evidence or the real data, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, become strengths. Uh, they can become pillars of a testimony as, as opposed to, you know, gaping wounds. So I'm, I really feel the need to help people become more aware of the resources that are out there. So I, I, my own blog called Mormonity is uh, one where I try to help share some of this information and a few of my own findings. Uh, my own website, I've got some stuff I've been writing, that's where I've been writing for many years. But some of these uh, higher end resources, Mormon, not the Mormon, the Interpreter Journal, um, Book of Mormon Central, Fair Mormon, uh, these are Pearl of Great Price Central, these have very, very valuable materials. And when people are struggling, they really should pay some attention to what's there. Uh, um, 
as, as opposed to just saying, wow, you know, this evidence is so overwhelming and I'm, my testimony shot. There's, there's additional steps that need to be taken besides caving in to the seemingly overwhelming pressures or arguments that some people can, can um, write. I love that. Yeah, I think it's just amazing how many resources there are. I remember when I first learned about Fair Mormon, that was kind of, I think there's kind of this illusion sometimes that there's this information that, oh, if you knew about this, like everyone would fall away from the church. Mm. I think Fair Mormon for me has been helpful, just kind of being able to be exposed to some of these things, but kind of seeing the context behind it seeing what faithful scholars have said, seeing what the brethren have said. I think for me, that's been so helpful and just kind of being able to look, look at our history and look for answers, but not get trapped by some persuasive writer who has a interpretation of the information that's can be harmful. Right. Right. Um, when you began blogging about this kind of stuff, were, were there, was there anyone else in this, this space of online apologetics at the time? Or were you like, were you one of the only people on that? Uh, it felt lonely at first. Uh, the, the church at that time didn't have much um, of, of, of a website. They had the domain name and it was slowly being developed. Um, there was shields. There were, there were a few places that had some information that, that was useful. Uh, there were certainly farms. Um, and but it took them a while to really build a, a meaningful website and it was still difficult to use and unfortunately with recent changes in the Maxwell Institute it is now more difficult than ever there's a huge treasure trove of information and in some of the old uh, foundation for ancient religion and Mormon studies farms um, publications that really could be a, a valuable resource uh, I linked to a lot of it I've dug through a lot of it on my on my website and on my blog but it has been uh, really uh, a little disappointing that all this material has not been blessed with steady URLs, for example. They, they've been changed every few years and links break. And recently the Maxwell Institute kind of purged all that information off their website and said and thought they thought they had moved it all to a BYU archival site, but the archival site is very hard to search, only has about half, maybe two thirds of the information that used to be there. And it's just uh, made it really difficult. So that's, that's a disappointment. But the, what's, ha what's happening, though, in its place is a lot of great material being added weekly at the Interpreter Journal, uh, Journal website and, and other sites. And some of it's so impressive. I mean, if, if you're looking for fascinating appreciation of the Book of Mormon, you should look at some of the recent publications of Matthew Bowen, for example, who is revealing some of the extensive uh, Hebraic or Middle Eastern language word plays that occur in some of the names in the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's, it, it shows that just like in Old Testament writers, uh, people used names and were aware of their meanings in that language and often did word plays or puns. So the name Alma, for example, which can mean a young man in Hebrew, um, he's introduced to us multiple times talking about how he, here was this young man, Alma, and his, his youth is a, is, a, is a constant theme. The name Nephi, which in Egyptian can mean good, is starts off talking about his goodly parents, and others talking about Nephi uh, continue to use the word good as if they're aware of the meaning of his name. And we see this on in, in many fronts, on numerous names, and some of the some of the most interesting evidences for the antiquity 
of the Book of Mormon is coming out of the ongoing research of Matthew Bowen, uh, much of which is being published at Interpreter. So I would suggest that is a fascinating, fascinating line to pursue, among many others. I guess like in, in your journey of like, I guess, accumulating knowledge and stuff, like when you're, when you're like looking for answers to questions and such, I guess, what are, what do you think are some of the difference between how you approach these issues versus it, there's a lot of people that they, they look into these things and they, they fall into apostasy. They, they kind of go down that rabbit hole. Right. I guess a question I have for you is what are some of the main differences in your approach versus, I guess, some of these people that kind of get flipped to the other side right. per se. Right. Um, I've struggled with enough issues in, in my life, not just in the area of LDS uh, thought and so forth, but in many other areas where I've realized that answers are not always quick and coming, but with patience, there are rewards that await us. And patience is probably the, the main thing I would, I would encourage. I, I'll share my own faith crisis that I had. I was called to be a bishop in Appleton, Wisconsin over 20 years ago, a long time ago. And during my first couple of years, um, well, in, in our ward, we had had a member who had left and actually formed one of the most popular anti-Mormon websites uh, and left over the issue of the Book of Abraham. And he thought, you know, well, the, the slam dunk evidence, you know, the basic case, hey, we thought Joseph Smith translated this from Egyptian papyri, but we never had the papyri, papyri to evaluate. Now we found them in the Metropolitan Museum, and we can see there's nothing, they have nothing to do with the Book of Abraham or with Abraham at all. Therefore, Joseph was a fraud. Case closed. He and his family left the church. And it's a very convincing argument, the way it's crafted. Uh, and I can understand, I can sympathize with anyone who struggles over the Book of Abraham. Um, as after he, after he left, I said, I wonder why, you know, what's, what's up? Why did he leave? And I kind of poked around and, and read some of the basic attacks on the book of Abraham myself. Um, this is in the early days of the internet. And I did find, you know, some things from the Tanners and others out there. And when I read the basic uh, presentation of the anti-Mormon side, it was deeply troubling. I mean, I can understand why people would leave. Wow. Now, I had the, the fortune of already having a pretty solid testimony of the Book of Mormon at that time. I'd had some very deep and personal experiences with it, studied it a lot, and um, felt I really could say I knew through Revelation that this was the Word of God. That was, that was very helpful to me to get through this crisis, but it still led me to say, you know, I remember going to the Lord in prayer and saying, Heavenly Father, I... I know the Book of Mormon is true, but what went wrong with the Book of Abraham? Did Joseph just have a really bad day? Did he fall? Was he just, you know, ah, doing his own thing? Uh, it's just so messed up. How, what went wrong? And in that prayer, I really felt, keep looking. No miraculous answer came down, you know, no, no URL popped into my mind that had the, the proof of anything, but just be patient. And that, I'm so grateful I was. And very grateful I was. It was uh, months later. Um, I realized I needed to be patient, but I also needed to look. Where to look? Well, I should get some basic information on the book of Abraham. So I ordered a couple of books. I got a book on the, the story of the book of Abraham by H. Donald Peterson. And it's just a basic book that goes over the history of the documents and what happened and what Joseph did and just some of the basic facts. But it was very eye-opening 
because as I read that, I learned, hey, wait a second. This thing that Tanner said is not quite the way it happened. They're talking as if we know for sure that the documents that were the Book of Abraham have now been found and translated. And in fact, what we found are a few surviving fragments of a much larger collection. How do they know that the much larger collection was not involved? Then I read some witness statements. I began then turning to a number of different sources and gradually over a period of months, realizing that the, the things that had bothered me so much were actually very heavily tainted with deception. And I think deliberate deception, where they left out key pieces of evidence that weakened their hypothesis or their argument. And they did it with a, with a sleight of hand approach. I'm an amateur magician and I really understand sleight of hand well. I understand how much you can trick people or deceive them by making them think you're saying something. Oh, I didn't really say that. I just kind of pointed this way and you made you think it was in my hand, but you know, it wasn't really there at all. Um, sleight of hand techniques are, are very common and you know, it can happen both ways. People defending the church can make some of the same mistakes where they conveniently leave out some of the, the, the painful details that really need to be confronted at some time or understood and not, you know, not too glibly hidden. We need to, people need to be inoculated to be aware. Oh, there are weaknesses. Leaders are fallible. Some things that look like mistakes have happened and we have to deal with it. But when it comes to the divinity of the scriptures and the things of the book of Abraham, there's a lot of value in being cautious about the arguments and looking for more, more light and truth, being patient, turning to the Lord and turning to good books and good resources that might give you different perspectives. That can help coupled with making sure your expectations are reasonable. Um, some of the biggest problems people run into is when they find out, oh, Joseph did something wrong, or Brigham did something wrong, or my bishop did something wrong, and have this expectation that if you're called as a prophet, you must know everything, right? You can't possibly make a wrong choice. If you're shopping for cereal, and you know which ones have the prize and which ones don't, and you always get the best price, and you, you, know, you never pick a bad product, and you, know, you never make a wrong turn. No, the Lord does not take over your brain. And that's a real important understanding that prophets are still humans and mistakes can happen. We need to, we need to have reasonable expectations. But so patience, searching, reasonable expectations. I guess those are the things that happen. Uh, when I went through that experience, my, my crisis of faith, I ended up coming out with a much stronger appreciation for the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham as revelation. I realized that Book of Abraham is very complicated. It's gotten even more complicated as we explore all these different theories about what happened with the Kirtland Egyptian papers and other documents, but there's way too much sleight of hand going on in, on the side of the adversary. And uh, it's taken a lot of work from some good people to help expose that. And as it gets exposed, we see things that were weaknesses are becoming strengths. And that's been a consistent theme in my life. Thank you for sharing those insights. Um, I also love that you, you mentioned the idea of sometimes we have this kind of this idea of infallible leaders. That's something that I kind of wanted to discuss next. I know for me, um, kind of the, the end of high school, I had kind of a kind of a mini a, a mini faith crisis where at that time I first learned about the church's history regarding race, and prior to that, I just wasn't aware. Of that and I heard some quotes by some leaders like Brigham Young and Bruce R. McConkie that 
our beliefs that we currently disavowed and we don't believe anymore. But for me, that was really shocking. And yeah. I kind of had like a lot of just kind of cognitive dissonance inside of me because I kind of grew up with kind of this conception that you hear that prophets that, oh, they're, they're imperfect, but like, you don't always believe it. I think of, there's a quote in Patrick Nason's book, Planted, that I, I really like. I might, I might totally be butchering this quote, but essentially he says that the Catholics, they believe that the Pope is, is infallible, but no one believes it. Um, but the Mormons, we believe that the prophets are fallible, but no one believes it. So I think so much of the time we kind of, we go into these issues and we look at church history, we have this, we have this paradigm of prophetic infallibility that just sets us up to, to fail. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on how we can maybe have more realistic expectations of these great men, but fallen men at the same time? Right, right. Uh, for me, it was so helpful to have the painful and difficult calling of being bishop and to, to experience just how easy it is for someone praying and trying to make wise choices to make serious mistakes. Uh, it was like week two or week one of, of being a bishop. I had a woman ready, ready to rip my throat out. She was so furious. I had, been, I had so offended her by a decision I made regarding some uh, musical program that we had. And I was just in shock. Why is she yelling at me? What, 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 have I, what could I possibly have done wrong? Um, I went over to her house, uh, bringing some flowers to try to say I'm sorry for what I didn't quite know was my crime yet. And uh, fortunately, she, she had the, the patience to sit down and talk to me and explain what I had done wrong and why it was so offensive and why it was such a problem. And, and I felt really blessed in that moment to have an experience that opened my eyes to see something just radically different from my perspective and to be able to help see a little bit through her perspective. And I came away agreeing with her, oh my goodness, if I had known that, if I had known the history and what has gone into this, and here I go canceling it or interfering. I forget exactly what, what I did wrong, but it was, it was quite serious from, from her perspective and then from mine once I understood. And I'm very grateful for that, that I was able to make an adjustment. I was blessed to have a couple of counselors during all, all my time as, as, as a bishop who could speak very frankly. And one, you know, one had uh, this icon, kind of iconoclastic tendencies that, that Nibley often did, who would just look me in the face and say, Bishop, do you really want to do that? You're going to really mess up if you do, and here's why. And I was so grateful for that, to have people that around me that could tell me where and when I was about to make a mistake that could help me reduce the risk of doing it. And we, st we still made mistakes. And I was sometimes still shocked at what people were offended over. And, and, and sometimes I could come away agreeing with them and, and try to do things differently. Other times I still scratched my head and couldn't understand. It was quite difficult. But I came away knowing that uh, many, many times, like I mean, probably on a weekly basis, in spite of doing my best to follow the rules, follow the guidelines, try to be considerate, all of that, I was stepping on someone's toes or I would say something, um, you know, maybe I was trying to crack a joke and then it came across some horribly offensive uh, comment if I did, because I didn't know the sensitivities of certain, certain issues. There were so many ways to, to go wrong. 
you know, the things you have to do when you're, when you're a bishop or a church leader, it's not like deciding what color of lines to paint in the parking lot or should we charge 10 cents or 20 cents for our piece of candy. They're, they're decisions that affect people's lives, that interact with, with their history, with their sense of pride, with their dignity, with uh, their, their, their relationships to the church, their relationships with others. You know, a simple thing like um, messing up in a calling and issuing a new calling before the old person gets released or releasing a person and not realizing that there has not been an interview with that person to formally release them. That can so easily happen. These can be huge setbacks for a person where they're embarrassed in front of the whole congregation and they feel that no one cares for them and you know, humiliation, we don't want that, but it can happen. And you're always one step away. It's, it's really, it's kind of frightening to be in a position of authority and to realize if I mess up, if I say this wrong, if I get the calling wrong, if I make this mistake, oh, the consequences can be really painful. And yet at the same time, it was the most wonderful time of my life. One of the most wonderful times. I mean, it's always the most recent two years have been the most wonderful two years of my life, really. But that time was, was tremendous for the blessings that came. There, there were times when I, when I could see what was meant by the mantle of the bishop. Um, times when I felt this person needs something. I didn't know it, but I knew it through, through the sense of the, the spirit. And, and we would arrange, go over a visit and find out there, there had just been some disaster or they were hungry or things that they needed help. And we were blessed so many times with sweet miracles that made me realize the Lord is there and the church is real, the priesthood is real, revelation is real. And yet here I was, a, a bishop blundering all the time and then stepping on people's toes and hurting feelings. and trying not to, but so fallible. So I came away realizing it is hard to be a church leader. That was just a small calling, but it was really hard. So many mistakes can be made, and yet miracles and, and wonderful blessings can, can happen through that ministry. And I realized if I can make all those blunders, you know, trying to do my best, and I could see similar combinations of miracles and blunders coming from leaders directly above me at times, um, why would I expect that to be different for anybody in the church? And the, the blunders they've made may be different, but we need, just as with the crisis of faith I had with the book of Abraham, part of the answer is we need patience. We need, we need patience and to seek for more. Sometimes what we should be seeking for is ways we can better learn or cope with the new problems that have been created or better support someone who may need some help and guidance. Um, there are different ways of looking at this, but getting angry and leaving the church, we, we should be prepared for those challenges to come and deliberately choose to be patient and, and loving in spite of really not liking or really disagreeing with, with a church leader. That, that will happen. Um, give them a break and hope the Lord gives us a break for our own flaws in our lives. I love that. I love that you've mentioned just like the importance of, of being patient with these people, because like, just like if we were in that position, we would want people to be patient with us. Um, right. Do you have any advice that you would give um, people who maybe they, they think that there is a leader of the church that's, that's making a big mistake on maybe like a doctrinal issue or something kind of something big like that? Um, do you have any advice for anyone that might be listening that's maybe struggling with that? Sure. 
Well, if it's uh, if it's someone you're you're close to and have access to, like your you know bishop or gospel doctrine teacher or, or stake president, um, I would I would talk with them and try to understand and help them understand that that you see things differently and you're concerned, and that can be a very healthy process. And I've I've done that a couple of times, and. Sometimes I came away not agreeing, but at least being grateful that I aired my concern or that uh, maybe I came away understanding, oh yeah, I wasn't seeing it quite right. There's going to be a lot of potential issues like that. And I think it's healthy to discuss them. If it's something like, uh, you know, you see President Nelson making some change or policy um, and you feel like, no, 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 that can't be right. Uh, that's a tougher one because yeah, you could write him, but you know, Millions of people might want to be writing about the same thing. Um, my main suggestion would be if something that top leaders like in the, President Nelson and, and so on, the top leaders say, if something galls you and really bothers you, please be patient. The worst thing in my opinion to do is to go onto Facebook and say, well, now I can't stand President Nelson. Or, well, I feel totally betrayed by, by this church leader because they said this and that's just totally wrong. Um, you know, you may be right. They, what they said may be totally wrong. There, there's, a, there's a chance that the Lord is saying, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you're right. He should. I didn't tell him to say that. Don't blame me. But that's not the way to deal with it. If there is a, if there is a mistake, a mortal mistake that has been made, getting angry and spreading it is not how the Lord wants us to cope with that. That will only damage other people. And, you know, you may not understand things yet. You may, you may be wrong. Well, how embarrassing are you going to feel, you know, if you are leading people away from the church because you got all riled up over something where, in fact, it was your misunderstanding. I mean, be patient. Be humble enough to realize you may be wrong. Even if you're sure you're right, be patient enough to put it on hold. And meanwhile, you can try talking to people or, or perhaps even writing an article that uh, you could send or an essay you could send to top leaders of the church to let them consider something they may have overlooked uh, that may not work. But don't take this uh, vocal, instant, antagonistic approach that we're kind of trained to do it that way on social media. Uh, we're always looking for something to trigger us. I mean, it seems like many people are being kind of trained and cultivated. You keep your eye out and look for faults. And if somebody says something wrong, or they support the wrong party, or they do this or that, jump on them and you know, don't, you gotta speak out and slam them. Uh, that's a really negative attitude. And that's, this, that's the whole spirit of contention. The first thing the Lord warned the Nephites about when he came, uh, the disputes among them, the contention that was going, they didn't have social media and yet it was still enough of a problem that the Lord had to make that his first priority in addressing the Nephites warning them that that's the, that's the way the adversary works, stirring up men's hearts to anger. Um, that is only going to fulfill the purposes of the adversary. Even if you think your cause is just, spreading anger and hate is not the Lord's way. So be patient. I think that's great counsel. I think, um, I think definitely like being patient. I think letting letting forgiveness into your heart as well. Um, I was recently like listening to a book by um, Charlie Kirk, who's an openly gay member of the church. And he's talked about his story of um, struggling with some, uh, some pretty harsh 
homophobic statements by past leaders of the church, but he talked about kind of when he just kind of learned to forgive these past leaders of the church, just kind of the burden that was lifted off of his shoulders. I think that's something that can be really helpful too, is just letting these people exercise the atonement and just forgiving them. And I like what you said too, like sometimes we might disagree. Maybe the, maybe the prophet is wrong, but I think just kind of keeping it to ourselves, not posting on social media and just kind of praying for them and maybe talking to a, a higher church leader about it, writing them a letter, but not trying to use it as a way of leading other people away. And then I also think it's important that we just remember that there's sometimes the Lord's going to command things that we just aren't going to understand, um, at least not with that revelation. So sometimes I think the prophets, a lot of time, I think they're right. And we just, our paradigm isn't always correct that we're seeing things from. Hmm. I think those are just some great ways that we can look at this. Um, do you have any other advice for people that, find themselves in a faith crisis right now like any maybe a framework or any ideas to deal with doubts or questions yeah um, we are blessed with so many resources and most of them are just simply ignored get out there and read um, the answer to your faith crisis may not be found by simply googling oh, so for example let's suppose someone has a faith faith crisis um, they saw online a discussion saying, hey, Book of Mormon's not true because uh, argument X. There's so many arguments that get recycled. Uh, one of the first ones I saw, by the way, online that made me raise some eyebrows and realize, oh, this looks like a, a problem. And I chose to be patient was the argument that the whole story of, of Nephi and Lehi going through the Arabian desert was obviously bogus because they've run into this river right away, right? The river, River Laman in the Valley of Lemuel. Well, guess what? There's no rivers in Arabia. The whole peninsula, pretty much no rivers. Certainly the northwestern part of Arabia, no rivers. And that was a slam dunk argument. How could that possibly be? Well, of course, there were, back then we could say, well, maybe there used to be rivers and they've just dried up since then. Maybe it was a temporary river in a wadi. You know, you could argue that. But that was one of those arguments that when I first saw it around 1993, 94, Oh man, that looked like a troubling argument. And I had to just put that on hold. I did not, did not have a good response to that yet. But it was just a few years later when that weakness in the Book of Mormon became a strength. And I, most Latter-day Saints, I think, don't realize what a strength this has become because they don't read enough. They don't get out there and read good stuff coming from good scholars about our own scriptures that can help them greatly appreciate their reality, or, or not just script, our scriptures, but all sorts of church issues. There's a lot of great literature, a lot of good articles. People need to get out there and read. For example, in the Book of Mormon, um, a couple of explorers went out there and, and they were, while they were looking for something else, the LDS explorers, they came across this, this amazing valley, a uh, big valley, and, and it had a stream in it, a continually flowing stream. It flows year round. And further research has shown this fits so many of the details of the story in, in the Arabian Peninsula thing. Wadi al Wadi al is, oh, sorry, having a mental block on the name. Wadi um, al Said. Um, this, this Wadi 
that's in the northwest part of, of the Arabian Peninsula, um, about uh, a, few, a few dozen miles south of, of the, north, the tip of the, of the Red Sea, has a continually flowing stream and has intricate details that line up so nicely with, with Nephi's short account in 1 Nephi 16 and 17. And it's not just that. We have a valley and a river that shouldn't be there that actually are. It's a small stream by, by, by our, our Western standards, but it would definitely be called a, riv a river in the, in, the, in the ancient languages then, and especially in such a dry place. Um, a nice place that you could have a camp. And there are some intricate details around that that fit. Not only that, uh, the next thing that's related to it was just found a couple months ago. It was just barely published in, in our journal, in Interpreter. This is by Warren Aston, who's done some of the most intricate research on the Arabian Peninsula. And he went to this, uh, the, uh, uh, this, this wadi and he was, while he was there, he was uh, exploring, wondering about the next stop on Nephi's trip of Shazer. And he'd been exploring the meaning of the word Shazer and its possible uh, relationship to you know, twisted wood or other things. And he wondered, um, you know, is it possible to get to a place like Shazer from the probable campsite in this wadi? Well, it turns out, but Nephi says the way they got to Shazer was they woke up one morning after having stayed in the Valley of Lemuel for a long time. They crossed the river, means it was shallow. You could walk across it. They were then on the north side of this river that flows into the Red Sea. They crossed the river and then began going south, southeast. They give a specific direction. And after four days, they reached this place called Shazer, where they had uh, lots of hunting game. Well, to my amazement, and no one had realized this before until Warren Aston went there, but in this amazing Valley of Lemuel candidate, the, the place that would be the most likely campsite is directly across the only place in that whole long wadi where you can escape from this deep granite valley or you can escape from the valley and start going south at all. And if you go that direction, you just walk across the river and you begin going south, southeast. And you then have an easy journey that would take about four days with camel to reach an amazing spot near modern day Sharma and it's called Wadi Esh Sharma. Um, that has a mountain, wild mountain with a lot of antelope. Still to this day, it has ibex and, and, and other animals that could be hunting game. And it's a perfect candidate for the place Shazer. Four days journey, hunting. You go south, southeast, you get there and you cross the river. And just like the Book of Mormon says, there's intricate details like that that Joseph Smith could not possibly have had access to in 1830. And it gets more exciting. Um, the whole Arabian thing was one of the slam dunk arguments against the Book of Mormon 20 years ago, 50 years ago, even 100 years ago. And now it is the number one uh, most powerful evidence for its reality and antiquity because of places like the Valley of Laman and the River Le uh, Valley of Lemuel and the River Laman, and then Shazer, which is now one of the four we call pillars of the Arabian Peninsula. You keep going this uh, direction, it's kind of south, southeast or southeast direction, and you do hit an ancient place that to this day is still called Nehem. It's from the Nehem tribe. Uh, it can be spelled different ways, but the Book of Mormon says they reached a place called, meaning it had a name, it wasn't them naming it, 
called Nahum. And they uh, link it to mourning and the burial of Ishmael. And the word Nahum can mean mourning and complaint and grieving and is a word associated with death. And there is a spot there. And then after that, where they could have buried Nahum. In fact, it's likely to have been a place in, inhabited by, by Jews who fled the original Assyrian invasion when the 10 tribes got scattered. A lot of Jews headed south around 700 BC down to, down to Yemen. And there may have been a colony of Jews there, which is why it was called uh, this name Nahum. And there's still an ancient tribe called the Nehem tribe. And it is attested with artifacts, um, three altars uh, to, the, to the east from Marib that have uh, a dedication to the local gods from a member of the Nehem tribe. So this NHM name, Nehem, Nehem, was there in Lehi's day, 700, 600 BC. We have hard, archaeological artifacts showing that name was prominent and that tribe is still there today. I even talked to a man recently from, from Yemen who said, yeah, it's the Nehem tribe. And uh, I was great talking to him. It's about 25 miles northeast of uh, Sana'a, the capital, a wonderful country that I wish could be freed up so we could visit and end this horrible civil war. But that's another topic going on. Then the Book of Mormon says at this point, you turn, they turned due east and they went eastward and reach the ocean. And everybody goes, oh, that's a death trap. Yeah, that can't possibly be real because we've all seen the Arabian Peninsula, Lawrence of Arabia, it's all these sand dunes. You can't take women, children, camels, and just walk across that sand for days after day without dying. But there is one place where you can turn due east off of the ancient incense trail and survive. And it's right there where Nahum is, the Nahem tribe. There's a place that's kind of a break between the two halves of the empty quarter where you don't have to cross sand dunes. You have a relatively flat journey. It's dry, but it's, it's doable. And if you are guided by the Liahona and pick the right wadi, you can come down into Wadi Saik, which has Kar Karfot, which is the leading most impressive candidate of a couple of candidates for the ancient place Bountiful that meets just about every criteria you can, criterion you can extract from the Book of Mormon for what Bountiful had to be. And there's this amazing, miraculous, still largely uninhabited place that fits Bountiful, the, the largest inland freshwater lagoon, largest freshwater lagoon in the Arabian Peninsula. Fruit trees, uh, abundant greenery at times of the year, at least it gets dry during the dry season, but it's, it can be very green and there are trees. Um, many, many details including iron ore and flint that, that comply with the Book of Mormon. And these were, it was crazy in Joseph's day to say such a thing. People had to be patient. They had to be patient for over a hundred years. But now, thanks to a handful of people who go there and take the Book of Mormon at face value and say, well, could this make sense? And they explore, they have found amazing treasures. River of Laman, Valley of Lemuel, Shazer, Nehem, and a wonderful candidate for Bountiful. And that's, that's amazing. It really is. Amazing. But we didn't have that. Our, your, our, your grandfather, your grandparents didn't know this. They had to just have faith and patience to cope with the arguments that might have been there. And now we have those treasures. But most Latter-day Saints still don't know it. They ought to be reading. They should read books by Warren Aston, for example, and understand what's going on. Long-winded answer. Sorry about that. Oh, I love that. That's powerful. I think we, we definitely we take for granted the evidences that there are and the research that has been done. I think in our, in our social media, internet savvy world, I think it's really easy to kind of just 
focus on headlines, catchy headlines. And we're kind of, our brains have been trained to, to like reading shorter things more. But I, these, these long articles have so much richness that if we were to take the time to study, it would be of such benefit to us. Right. And the, the, also, the other danger too is in social media, we tend to congregate in circles of, of like-minded people and it really can become an echo chamber. So if you're hanging out on social media and a lot of your friends are kind of, you know, on the fringe of the church and have lots of faith issues and question this and mock that, and that that's what you see every day. Those are the, you know, your trusted circles on Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. Well, you, you, you start developing this, this view that that's how the universe is. The smart people are all down on the church and there's tons and tons of issues and you never hear the refutations of them. You never hear the faith promoting side. Living in an echo chamber on social media is really destructive. Now it can be great to get out there and, and share positive things, but if that's where you get all your information, you're, you're really not gonna know what's going on. Get out there and, and read something real. Get some, get, you know, get some good books. The, the scriptures tell us, seek wisdom out of the best books. And the best books aren't you know, short little tweets, a series of little tweets on Twitter or Facebook post from an echo chamber. The best books are out there, but we need to look for them. Then read them. I love that. I guess there's one more question I wanted to just ask is speaking of books, um, if there is someone that's in the middle of a, of a faith crisis right now that's listening, and if you had to maybe give three book recommendations outside of the scriptures, what would they be? Wow, that's a great one. There's so many. Um, Brant Gardner has written some really good things recently. The Book of Mormon is History is a very nice approach to understanding and appreciating the Book of Mormon. Um, at least knowing about John Sorensen's work, such as Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon or Mormon's Codex, uh, can be really interesting for those who care about some of the geographical issues. And I recognize that's controversial because there are other theories that people have, but in terms of the depth of scholarship, you're not gonna find well, I, that's again my biased opinion, but I think that's really interesting. Um, there are, uh, you know, I think Warren Astin's latest book, uh, Lehi and uh, Lehi and Soraya in Arabia. It's uh, on Kindle. It's electronic only, as far as I know. But he also has a great DVD, uh, Lehi in Arabia, that um, might really be well worth the ten or twelve dollar in investment to to watch that video. I think you can also watch it free online too if you go yeah, through it. It might be on Netflix. I could be wrong. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a couple of places where you can see it. The, the details in that, spend an hour watching this video. Uh, the details in that are really impressive. And if you're struggling with, uh, with Book of Abraham, um, just a series of articles instead of a book, but a series of articles at Pearl of Great Price Central, there is some great material there. And also at the interpreter, um, interp which is at interpreterfoundation.org. I would strongly recommend that. Uh, but there are, you know, depending on the topic, depending on where you are and what you're looking for, there are a lot of great, a lot of great books out there. And, and you'll find a lot of them uh, discussed or quoted on places like uh, Fair Mormon, uh, the Fair Mormon website. 
as well as Book of Mormon Central. In fact, they're archiving a lot of materials there. Some of these awesome books are available free online. You can read a number of things from people like, like you know, Hugh Nibley uh, and many other scholars. Some of, these, some of these books are completely free online and you just need to look and follow some of the references. And uh, I'd be happy to, if you have specific questions, I'd be very happy to answer them. You can send me an email. My email is my name, Jeff at jefflindsay.com and it's spelled with an S-A-Y. So J-E-F-F-L-I-N-D-S-A-Y.com. So yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to take you know questions. Maybe I can think a little bit about it and then give people specific recommendations for some resources on issues that they're, that they're finding. But every topic, whether it's uh, you know, church history issues or doctrinal issues, there are some really wonderful resources out there that coupled with the scriptures, coupled with uh, you know, some teachings of the church that can guide us through these things can really help us anchor our faith. It's a mistake to think that the arguments we run into on social media are just slam dunk, that we, uh, we, that we can't face it and we tell everybody, cover your ears, don't read that. No, where the church is taking a lot of steps. If you read the gospel topics, essays, a lot of steps to confront some of the tough and puzzling issues. And uh, a little bit of patience, again, will really help. Like recently, the whole issue about the seer stones. Oh my goodness, I'm so shocked. Seer stones, he was, he was looking at a stone in his hat. That's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it's ridiculous to us. But then stop and think. Every witness that saw him translating the Book of Mormon he was dictating dozens of, you know, dozens and dozens of pages with his head looking into a hat. I mean, he, he wasn't taking notes and revising and all that. He was dictating by looking into a hat. He was dictating pages out of Isaiah, getting them right with modest and sometimes very important, meaningful changes. He was dictating complicated stories page after page. He was referring back and quoting things that were that, that maybe Lehi or Nephi had said and getting them perfect, not going back and saying, read me that quote, let's get this straight. Just dictating as he saw, perceived, read, whatever the, the, the words that came through, whatever technique he used, looking into the hat, getting, seeing something, visualizing something, page after page, hour after hour, without notes, without a Bible, even when he's quoting pages from the Bible, without the Bible in front of him, this is a miraculous process. It is far more miraculous than what we used to think, where we might have had notes and a Bible and referring to things. No, he's just dictating. Stop and get your head around that. This is not a good reason to leave the church. This is a reason to go, I don't know how he did it or what's going on, but that's pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is, there's been so much knowledge here and so much wisdom. So I'd, I'd just recommend anyone take advantage of the things we talk about. Be patient. Answers will come. Make sure your expectations are realistic and read. Like, like Jeff said, there's so much good stuff to read. And also Jeff, he mentioned his email. I'll be posting that on next to this podcast. So if you have questions, reach out to him. He's he loves helping people. He's dedicated a lot of time to this. And I know he's a great tool in the Lord's hand. So reach out to him. You're not alone. You're not in the dark. There's, there's lots of people out here that want to help you with your journey. Um, thanks so much for joining us. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast.
Thank you. Ryan, thank you. That was great. And it's, it's a pleasure uh, talking with you. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. You're making a, a real difference out there. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.